You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. As the country looks for growth engines in the wake of the COVID-19 cataclysm, we often talk of infrastructure as a major lever that we have to pull. But another industry is flying quietly under the radar and could offer uh, some more hope in a country desperately searching for small economic miracles, business process outsourcing or BPO. Now the name doesn't conjure the same sexy images of Roosevelt's New Deal, but in a recent McKinsey report, the consulting firm noted that South Africa has been voted the second most attractive business process outsourcing location in the world for three years in a row now and it's based on its reputation as a reliable cost-effective and high-quality destination for outsourced business services and South Africa's standing as a key BPO player has been reinforced over the last six months while lockdown measures to contain the coronavirus comprised um, uh, certain restrictions uh, certainly business continuity was also compromised across the world uh, South African contact centers were quick to migrate to remote working models and were able to remain operational with minimal disruption uh, to clients as well. So that certainly proved the resilience of the model. To talk about the rise of BPO, I'm joined now by Ambassador Sadiq Jaffa of InvestSA. That's uh, the government department responsible for investment promotion. It's part of the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. Tanya Cohen, who's a coordinator for the Public-Private Growth Initiative, which is a collaborative initiative between business and government that has been driving growth at a sectoral level in the country and really focusing on unblocking the many obstacles that we have to growth and Andy Searle who is the CEO of uh, BPESA, the industry body for the global business services sector, uh, the other no, the name for BPO in South Africa. Andy, I wonder how many people actually know that we've been rated as the second best business process outsourcing location in the world for three years in a row. We obviously need to talk a lot more about this uh, success story. Just kick us off here. At its heart, what is uh, BPO all about? Thanks, Michael. It, it really is exciting news for South Africa and not well enough known. Um, BPO, and I refer to it as Global Business Services, um, are all those organizations that um, either provide third-party services, so these could be what we, we know traditionally as call centers, but they extend all the way through to far more niche services like outsourced finance and accounting, digital and ITO work, design work, um, legal services, etc and require great skills, but skills that can be brought in at an entry level, post-school without any further education and then developed in the workplace. They also include many of the large corporates who choose to um, run shared services that service their, their various divisions. Um, and what happens is these organizations uh, either locate onshore in their own country or in many cases they offshore that work to countries like South Africa. And when you talked about South Africa being recognized as the second most preferred BPO offshore destination in the world. It's a huge credit to the talent of South Africa, of young people who service this industry, to the quality and caliber of the operators um, who operate from South Africa, both international and domestic. Um, and it it's really is um, the tip of an iceberg in terms of what's possible. Uh, why are we so naturally strong, Andy, in this area? Is it just cost competitiveness with the, with the weak RAND lately? What are our core competitive strengths that see us rank so highly in the world? There are a number of, of factors that drive that, Michael. So first and foremost, um, I want to just highlight the quality of service and reliability, um, which most uh, buyers rank highest in terms of their criteria. 
Now that includes um, the English language, the quality of the English language, both spoken and written. And our target source markets are North America, um, the UK, Australia, the English speaking countries primarily. We do work in many others, but that's where the bulk of our work is that we really compete successfully for. Now combined with uh, an attractive price, we are probably the third most cost competitive uh, country compared to the Philippines and India, who are slightly cheaper than us, but we don't compete on cost alone. The balance of that quality and that price, and then uh, you talked about it earlier, um, demonstrating operational resilience, reliability, um, the infrastructure we have in South Africa, the high level of collaboration and support between uh, business and government and support from government is what distinguishes South Africa from many other destinations. Uh, Ambassador Jaffa, according to that McKinsey report that I referenced in my introduction, government has been one of the key enablers to the success story and it has been for several years now. How have you approached supporting the growth of uh, BPO in the country, both through financial and non-financial interventions? I mean, uh, uh, thank you. I think the key issue here is the collaboration that we have with the industry. And PESA is the industry body and we work very close together with it. We have collaborated in the process of identifying which are our key markets that we seek to attract. And we have effectively an incentive that is there to assist. I mean, this is an OPEX uh, incentive bringing down the operational cost, and that allows us to compete in a global space. Because we understand that where we're coming from, uh, given that we are developing countries, some of the issues that we have to address is infrastructure. So part of the operation operating cost effectively for a setup cost is covered by the incentive. But the incentive is really premised on the fact that they need to actually employ people. And here the focus is on employing the youth. Uh, and it's over a time period, effectively. So that's the type of thing. And the industry has found that actually very beneficial to that context. So it is essentially the context with us and the, and the industry, the collaboration that we have, and the targeted approach that we have in attracting the players from abroad. Thank you. Uh, Tanya, from uh, the public-private growth initiative's uh, perspective, uh, you are doing all of this work at a cross-sectoral level, looking at some of the key blockages. This is one of those uh, sectors that uh, shows real high growth potential here. Just what sort of potential are we talking about in terms of growth, in terms of uh, job-rich employment? So I think the sector certainly is one of the rising stars um, and it's, it's wonderful to see in the economic climate that we find ourselves in because it is one sector that is actually gaining jobs um, and it is one sector that has potential to attract investment but also um, to export more. So I, I think that that combination of factors and the fact that it is so labour intensive and, and, and a sector that can really be good for youth to work in um, and relatively low entry levels in terms of, of, of skills in a, a lot of the jobs in the sector makes makes it very, very attractive. At the moment, um, the, the sector employs about 200,000 people. Um, the, the potential in terms of growing that has been mapped by the sector and Andy would speak far more eloquently to to, to those issues than I would, um, but they've mapped the, the, the jobs potential. And I think what we're seeing from a PPGI perspective is that there's just so much opportunity. It's a cross-cutting sector. It sits in and augments and, um, and creates efficiency in so many other sectors that it's, it's not a sector in itself only. It's a, it's a, it's a combination of one of those network industries that really sits, sits amongst others in the economy. And the potential is huge.
Andy, I'm going to bounce that over to you then, uh, having done a lot of that uh, in-depth uh, research into that, uh, that potential in the sector. Uh, to grow from 200,000 jobs, uh, what, what is the potential in terms of job creation? Just last week we saw the country losing uh, between 2.2 and 2.8 million jobs thanks to COVID-19. Certainly job-rich uh, growth stories are what we need more of. Absolutely, Michael. Let me add to what Tanya shared with you. Um, in, in the sense that we've, we've got two key sub-segments in the sector. We've got a very strong domestic segment, which employs about 200,000 young people. Um, and then we have a very vibrant, uh, growing export segment that uh, Tanya and uh, the ambassador were talking about, and that currently employs just over 65,000 young people. Now, while the domestic sector is closely linked to the local growth and tracks GDP very closely, the export segment has been growing at about 24% compounded growth per year, measured in the number of net new jobs, um, for the four years preceding 2019. And then it jumped to 35% on the previous year in 2019. COVID obviously took its toll, um, but uh, it didn't stop the sector, and we can talk about that as well. But, but we see the growth potential um, leading up to uh, 100,000 jobs, which we've already made quite a dent into that by the end of 2023. So we are targeting um, you know, investments and, and new operational growth to, to create about 70,000 new jobs by, in that time period from today. And then very boldly, you know, with all our partners and all the role players and really driving inclusive participation in this opportunity across the country, we believe that by 2030, this sector could add 500,000 jobs to the economy. That's just uh, phenomenal and, and makes it a bigger employer potentially than, uh, than mining, which is an industry that gets a lot more attention in South Africa. Uh, Ambassador, you spoke about these investment conferences that you host in New York, uh, over in Europe, uh, and also in the Antipodes. Uh, what is the general reception towards the, the, the message that InvestSA uh, brings to these conferences? Uh, one thinks that um, investors might be concerned about things like security of power supply with ESCOM being in the news, uh, uh, high-level stories of corruption obviously being in the news quite often. What are the key investor concerns that they have before investing in South Africa as a BPO destination? Thank you. I think the, the issue that the investors have is that our leaders, effectively the, the industries, that, the countries that are above us, is also developing countries. So the issues of electricity, the issues of safety is something that's prevalent in the minds of the investors. However, we have managed to ensure that that is addressed in a, in a sustained way, ineffectively. And that has allowed us to actually grow the industry in that context. I mean, maybe to, to add to what Andy has said, that the growth rate of the industry, effectively, if you look at the South African context against our peers, effectively, we're growing three times faster than India and also the Philippines. So, but in the global sense, we're also growing twice as much as the industry is growing. So the investor has come and they've come to South Africa and for them, it's a value destination. And they've realized that the combination of what we offer in terms of the incentives, in terms of the infrastructure that we have here, in terms of the collaboration, and more importantly, in terms of the youth that we have that they are employing, 80% of the industry effectively employed, is youth employed in the, in the industry. And that means that the market is actually there for them. So the value of service that we provide in the combination, investors is actually, that is what they see. And we have enough um, examples of international competitors, international operators setting up and running the operations here, and they become our best marketers. So in collaboration with them, when we go to the US or Australia and, and the UK, we take these operations
operators with us. They actually are doing the service. And effectively, we can then say, this is part of a collaboration that we do. And when we say it's a good place to do business, when we say you can add value to your operations, they are the ones that actually tell it more in, in effect. And because they're operating in the, in, in the industry effectively, the new um, operators effectively believe them in collaboration with what we are saying because we are not selling a message that is just mm. a message effectively. Tanya, COVID-19 hit, and I think uh, we've seen uh, you know, work from home as a result. We've also seen uh, markets around the world scramble to ensure that there's business continuity. How did COVID-19 impact the local BPO sector? So I think, first of all, the, the sector was incredibly agile, um, and I think it really how it responded during COVID really demonstrated its resilience. So it, it seemed to be that the, the sector was um, was on the mark in that regard, and I think um, that has really strengthens its position globally. Um, what we saw in the very, very early stages before lockdown even came into effect is that the sector was already raising the warning signs and the alarm bells around the fact that they provided a number of essential services and support to essential services, both locally and internationally. Um, and they were concerned that they would actually have to be included in that list of essential sectors. And as a result of that, the sector literally pulled together a list of um, where they are operating essential services. And we managed to engage with government who were incredibly receptive um, to the process and included large parts of, of, of those um, services into the initial regulations. And in fact, when the initial regulations came out, there were some areas that had been left off and those amendments that took place overnight um, just before the lockdown came into effect actually to a large extent addressed some of the deficits on the, um, on the global business services side. So I think that's where it started, is that we saw that, um, that, that the sector had really initiated and been ahead of of the curve in identifying the potential concern. And from there, actually, that relationship cemented itself. And um, what we saw is the sector being really agile in relation to the challenges being experienced. So at the beginning of the lockdown, there were a number of um, sectors that, even though they had been declared essential, were being prevented from operating because the law enforcement officials were not aware that they were essential. So the way in which the sector dealt with it, the way in which they escalated it, and then I think even more importantly, the way in which the sector proactively put in place protocols to deal with safety at work and started pivoting into remote work was just absolutely incredible. So within the space of one, two, three months is that they pivoted to a large portion of remote work. But I think the other part is that those protocols were just unbelievably quickly implemented. Andy, what stands out for you as uh, the big lessons and the, the takeaways from the way the sectors responded to COVID-19? Michael, there are a few. I think the most important um, lesson learned was the importance of collaborative relationships. So firstly, um, BAPESA has a partnership with the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition and with a, an organization called Arambi Youth Employment um, um, Accelerator. And between the three of them, there was a lot of preempting um, what could come with COVID. And Tanya's mentioned then, um, uh, with that partnership firmly in place, the ability to share information, prepare, et cetera. And then very importantly, uh, the channels and the platforms, such as the Public-Private Growth Initiative, through which um, we, together with many other sectors, could 
raise concerns, um, solve problems, I mean, engage in a very real-time basis with the decision makers um, and get things done. So th that, that I think is number one. The second key lesson for me was, you know, just the, the leadership of, of South African business um, and the operator side and the supply side. They, they just immediately worked with each other um, to solve these problems. Tanya talked about the drafting of the um, workplace protocols, you know, sharing information, helping each other out, making sure that everybody could get through this um, as, if, as well as possible. And they always put the, um, the, the priority um, on the safety of their, their workers. Tanya talked about, um, I think the third point for me was South Africa's ability and, and agility in being able to respond. So in that context of collaborative support, from the the key partners and collaboration amongst the the key actors in the industry what was this ability to respond quickly deploy workers from home change working models on site monitor and manage course correct and and you know believe it or not um but these companies exceeded their normal service delivery standards during lockdown under these really extraordinary circumstances so um these those were the standouts for me and i think what they what they you know tell us is what, what potential we've got um, between the role players and, and um, the, the key stakeholder groups mm. um, and the business in South Africa and the young people for the future. We've got to embrace that and we've got to leverage these strengths and, and um, collaborative relationships to now get back onto a growth path and replicate that across other sectors. Ambassador Jaffa, uh, the, the goal must surely now to acquire number uh, one status in the world and uh, armed with these examples, armed with this fantastic case study of, of how the, the sector has responded to COVID-19 successfully and with this deep collaboration, what is next um, on InvestSA's agenda to help achieve that? Well, next is on InvestSA's agenda is to ensure that uh, we get to the number one status. And, and that means that there's a lot of work that we have to do in terms of ensuring that the underlying processes is, is in place, you know, that we have the, the inflows into the sector in terms of the, the youth coming into the process to ensure that government continues to provide the support which government is committed to doing. Um, that we have three years, we are number two. It's now, it's now our turn to actually ascend to number one. But ascending to number one is effectively ensuring that we continue to provide a, a service, global service. And this is in a sense, one could say the COVID process has actually shown uh, the light on the, the, the sector, but also the response of the sector in continuing to provide the service. So when we were in lockdown, effectively, the service continued to provide the crucial service, as Tony said, not just locally, but internationally. And that resonates in the minds of operators globally because they realize that South Africa, while it was shut down, wasn't shut down completely. They were still able to provide the service that they could do, and they provided a good service. And that really is, you know, the foundation that we build onto this process. Going mm. out, we will talk about nearshoring effectively, um, where we can provide a good service because we are closer to the key markets of the US and Europe. Absolutely. We have all of those key ingredients, uh, you know, well-spoken, uh, sort of culturally neutral English language, uh, geographically well-located, cost competitive, uh, and uh, certainly the good the, infrastructure. The good infrastructure. Um, what are the challenges? Are, are there any challenges, Ambassador, that you, you're directly looking to address? Uh, uh, because right now it does look to be an industry with very few challenges. Yes, there are challenges. I mean, uh, the key challenge is the fact that it's the 
ensuring that people understand that we are not a, a um, we are a value destination. We're not a cost destination. Our cost, effectively, in if we look at the cost metrics, will always be slightly higher than competitors like uh, in Asia. But it's about the value, and this is where the operator actually finds the value in the sense that the employed the the youth employed in that actually provides a much better value service. It's neutral English. They can actually do that better empathy. And they've shown, in effect, they can problem solve in a, in a better sense. So effectively, that is our biggest strength. And that is really, for us, the key component in, in, in what we sell, effectively, that we actually mm -hmm. have an extremely good argument and a good solution, in effect, that the youth that is employed in the sector is our biggest selling point. They provide a good quality service, effectively. And that's really the strength, and that's what we build on. It is that, that's really, I suppose, to say, don't look at South Africa just as in terms of value, look in, in cost, look in terms of value. So when you add the value and the cost together, that we're actually number one, effectively. And, Tanya, and that's the message we're taking across. Uh, as the public-private growth initiative, uh, you obviously look deep into these sectors and try to clear, clear away any uh, either red tape or, or any other uh, challenges or hurdles. Um, would you say that potentially uh, telecoms uh, costs um, is a challenge and, and more could be done to bring the telecoms costs in South Africa down? Um, both the costs and I think the access and the infrastructure, because at the moment the sector is largely confined to the main metros. And that's because of your stability of your digital supply um, and your infrastructure in those areas. So our ability to expand into other areas of the country in this sector, um, and as well as growing demand, is, is to a large extent limited by, by that factor. So I think getting the infrastructure right will actually expand the opportunities in the sector. And then the other thing which is always important in any industry is getting the skills mix ready for when mm. you're ready to grow. Um, and what's wonderful about this sector is that there is a career progression, a relatively low entry into the sector. But um, it, even those sort of low entry skills, it, it, it needs to be augmented, people need to be ready. And then the enhanced skills that are around digital um, are, are really going to open up the potential of the sector even further. Andy, just your concluding thoughts uh, as we've got about a minute to go. I think we have to keep working with the partnerships we have represented by those on the call. I think we've got to recognize, as the ambassador said, the incredible value of the young people in South Africa and tap into that value potential to its full. And I think we need to look boldly at the future, understanding that we can be very competitive in this um, world of globally traded services. Um, we must accelerate the building of our um, uh, digital economy skills for our skills. To Tanya's point, we must accelerate um, the rollout of, of infrastructure to provide access. But we've got something that's unique, strong, and should go on that. Absolutely. $163 billion a year industry, US dollars that is, and uh, we're looking to grow our piece of that particular pie, which is expanding as well. Ambassador Sadiq Jaffa, thank you very much for joining our panel of InvestSA. Uh, Ambassador Jaffa was joined by Tanya Cohen, coordinator for the Public Private Growth Initiative, and Andy Searle, uh, the CEO of BPESA.